Section 10 of Chapter 17 of A History of England. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jen Raimundo. History of England by Thomas Babington Macaulay. Chapter 17, Section 10. On the day on which Tyrconnell died, the advance guard of the English army came within sight of Limerick. Ginkle encamped on the same ground which William had occupied twelve months before. The batteries, on which were planted guns and bombs, very different from those which William had been forced to use, played day and night, and soon roofs were blazing and walls crashing in every corner of the city. Whole streets were reduced to ashes. Meanwhile, several English ships of war came up the Shannon and anchored about a mile below the city. Still the place held out. The garrison was, in numerical strength, little inferior to the besieging army, and it seemed not impossible that the defence might be prolonged till the equinoctial rains should a second time compel the English to retire. Ginkle determined on striking a bold stroke. No point in the whole circle of the fortifications was more important, and no point seemed to be more secure than the Thomond Bridge, which joined the city to the camp of the Irish horse on the Clare Bank of the Shannon. The Dutch general's plan was to separate the infantry within the ramparts from the cavalry without, and this plan he executed with great skill, vigor, and success. He laid a bridge of tin boats on the river, crossed it with a strong body of troops, drove before him in confusion fifteen hundred dragoons who made a faint show of resistance, and marched towards the quarters of the Irish horse. The Irish horse sustained but ill on this day the reputation which they had gained at the Boyne. Indeed, that reputation had been purchased by the almost entire destruction of the best regiments. Recruits had been without much difficulty found, but the loss of fifteen hundred excellent soldiers was not to be repaired. The camp was abandoned without a blow. Some of the cavalry fled into the city. The rest, driving before them as many cattle as could be collected in that moment of panic, retired to the hills. Much beef, brandy, and harness was found in the magazines, and the marshy plain of the Shannon was covered with firelocks and grenades which the fugitives had thrown away. The conquerors returned in triumph to their camp, but Ginkel was not content with the advantage which he had gained. He was bent on cutting off all communication between Limerick and the county of Clare. In a few days, therefore, he again crossed the river at the head of several regiments, and attacked the fort which protected the Thomond Bridge. In the short time the fort was stormed. The soldiers who had garrisoned it fled in confusion to the city. The town major, a French officer, who commanded at the Tom and Gate, afraid that the pursuers would enter with the fugitives, ordered that part of the bridge which was nearest to the city to be drawn up. Many of the Irish went headlong into the stream and perished there. Others cried for quarter, and held up handkerchiefs in token of submission. But the conquerors were mad with rage, their cruelty could not be immediately restrained, and no prisoners were made till the heaps of corpses rose above the parapets. The garrison of the fort had consisted of about eight hundred men. Of these, only a hundred and twenty escaped into Limerick. This disaster seemed likely to produce a general mutiny in the besieged city. The Irish clamoured for the blood of the town major who had ordered the bridge to be drawn up in the face of their flying countrymen. His superiors were forced to promise that he should be brought before a court-martial. Happily for him, he had received a mortal wound in the act of closing the Tom and Gate, and was saved by a soldier's death from the fury of the multitude. The cry for capitulation became so loud and importunate that the generals could not resist it. Dusson informed his government that the fight at the bridge had so effectually cowed the spirit of the garrison that it was impossible to continue the struggle. Some exception may perhaps be taken to the evidence of Dusson, for undoubtedly he, like every Frenchman who had held any command in the Irish army, was weary of his banishment and impatient to see Paris again. 
but it is certain that even Sarsfield had lost heart. Up to this time his voice had been for stubborn resistance. He was now not only willing, but impatient to treat. There was no hope of succor, domestic or foreign. In every part of Ireland the Saxons had set their feet on the necks of the natives. Sligo had fallen. Even those wild islands which intercept the huge waves of the Atlantic from the Bay of Galway had acknowledged the authority of William. The men of Kerry, reputed the fiercest and most ungovernable part of the aboriginal population, had held out long, but had at length been routed and chased to their woods and mountains. A French fleet, if a French fleet were now to arrive on the coast of Munster, would find the mouth of the Shannon guarded by English men of war. The stock of provisions within Limerick was already running low. If the siege were prolonged, the town would, in all human probability, be reduced either by force or by blockade. And if Ginkle should enter through the breach, or should be implored by a multitude perishing with hunger to dictate his own terms, what could be expected but a tyranny more inexorably severe than that of Cromwell? Would it not then be wise to try what conditions could be obtained while the victors had still something to fear from the rage and despair of the vanquished, while the last Irish army could still make some show of resistance behind the walls of the last Irish fortress? On the evening of the day which followed the fight at the Tommond Gate, the drums of Limerick beat a parley, and Wokup, from one of the towers, hailed the besiegers and requested Rivigny to grant Sarsfield an interview. The brave Frenchman, who was an exile on account of his attachment to one religion, and the brave Irishman, who was about to become an exile on account of his attachment to another, met and conferred, doubtless with mutual sympathy and respect. Ginkle, to whom Rivigny reported what had passed, willingly consented to an armistice. For constant as his success had been, it had not made him secure. The chances were greatly on his side, yet it was possible that an attempt to storm the city might fail, as a similar attempt had failed twelve months before. If the siege should be turned into a blockade, it was probable that the pestilence which had been fatal to the army of Schomberg, which had compelled William to retreat, and which had all but prevailed even against the genius and energy of Marlborough, might soon avenge the carnage of Agram. The rains had lately been heavy. The whole plain might shortly be an immense pool of stagnant water. It might be necessary to move the troops to a healthier situation than the bank of the Shannon, and to provide for them a warmer shelter than that of tents. The enemy would be safe till the spring. In the spring a French army might land in Ireland, the natives might again rise in arms from Donegal to Kerry, and the war, which was now all but extinguished, might blaze forth fiercer than ever. A negotiation was therefore opened with a sincere desire on both sides to put an end to the contest. The chiefs of the Irish army held several consultations at which some Roman Catholic prelates and some eminent lawyers were invited to assist. A preliminary question, which perplexed tender consciences, was submitted by the bishops. The late Lord Lieutenant had persuaded the officers of the garrison to swear that they would not surrender Limerick till they should receive an answer to the letter in which their situation had been explained to James. The bishops thought that the oath was no longer binding. It had been taken at a time when the communications with France were open, and in the full belief that the answer of James would arrive within three weeks. More than twice that time had elapsed. Every avenue leading to the city was strictly guarded by the enemy. His Majesty's faithful subjects, by holding out till it had become impossible for him to signify his pleasure to them, had acted up to the spirit of their promise. The next question was what terms should be demanded. A paper, containing propositions which statesmen of our age will think reasonable, but which to the most humane and liberal English Protestants of the seventeenth century appeared extravagant, was sent to the camp of the besiegers. 
what was asked was that all offences should be covered with oblivion that perfect freedom of worship should be allowed to the native population that every parish should have its priest and that irish roman catholics should be capable of holding all offices civil and military and of enjoying all municipal privileges ginkle knew little of the laws and feelings of the english but he had about him persons who were competent to direct him they had a week before prevented him from breaking a rapery on the wheel and they now suggested an answer to the propositions of the enemy i am a stranger here said ginkle i am ignorant of the constitution of these kingdoms but i am assured that what you ask is inconsistent with that constitution and therefore i cannot honour with consent he immediately ordered a new battery to be thrown up and guns and mortars to be planted on it but his preparations were speedily interrupted by another message from the city the irish begged that since he could not grant what they had demanded he would tell them what he was willing to grant he called his advisers round him and after some consultation sent back a paper containing the heads of a treaty such as he had reason to believe that the government which he served would approve what he offered was indeed much less than what the irish desired but was quite as much as when they considered their situation and the temper of the english nation they could expect they speedily notified their assent it was agreed that there should be a cessation of arms not only by land but in the ports and bays of munster and that a fleet of french transports should be suffered to come up the shannon in peace and to depart in peace the signing of the treaty was deferred till the lord's justices who represented william at dublin should arrive at ginkle's quarters but there was during some days a relaxation of military vigilance on both sides prisoners were set at liberty the outposts of the two armies chatted and messed together the english officers rambled into the town the irish officers dined in the camp anecdotes of what passed at the friendly meetings of these men who had so lately been mortal enemies were widely circulated one story in particular was repeated in every part of europe has not this last campaign said sarsfield to some english officers raised your opinion of irish soldiers to tell you the truth answered an englishman we think of them much as we always did however meanly you may think of us replied sarsfield change kings with us and we will willingly try our luck with you again he was doubtless thinking of the day on which he had seen the two sovereigns at the head of two great armies william foremost in the charge and james foremost in the flight on the first of october coningsby and porter arrived at the english headquarters on the second the articles of capitulation were discussed at great length and definitely settled on the third they were signed they were divided into two parts a military treaty and a civil treaty the former was subscribed only by the generals on both sides the lords justices set their names to the latter by the military treaty it was agreed that such irish officers and soldiers as should declare that they wished to go to france should be conveyed thither and should in the meantime remain under the command of their own generals ginkle undertook to furnish a considerable number of transports french vessels were also to be permitted to pass and repass freely between brittany and munster part of limerick was to be immediately delivered up to the english but the island on which the cathedral and the castle stand was to remain for the present in the keeping of the irish the terms of the civil treaty were very different from those which ginkle had sternly refused to grant it was not stipulated that the roman catholics of ireland should be competent to hold any political or military office or that they should be admitted into any corporation but they obtained a promise that they should enjoy such privileges in the exercise of their religion as were consistent with the law or as they had enjoyed in the reign of charles the second to all inhabitants of limerick and to all officers and soldiers in the jacobite army who should submit to the government and notify their submission by taking the oath of allegiance an entire amnesty was promised 
They were to retain their property, they were to be allowed to exercise any profession which they had exercised before the Troubles, they were not to be punished for any treason, felony, or misdemeanor committed since the accession of the late king, nay, they were not to be sued for damages on account of any act of spoliation or outrage which they might have committed during the three years of confusion. This was more than the Lord's justices were constitutionally competent to grant. It was therefore added that the government would use its utmost endeavors to obtain a parliamentary ratification of the treaty. As soon as the two instruments had been signed, the English entered the city, and occupied one quarter of it. A narrow but deep branch of the Shannon separated them from the quarter which was still in possession of the Irish. In a few hours a dispute arose which seemed likely to produce a renewal of hostilities. Sarsfield had resolved to seek his fortune in the servants of France, and was naturally desirous to carry with him to the continent such a body of troops as would be an important addition to the army of Lewis. Ginkel was as naturally unwilling to send thousands of men to swell the forces of the enemy. Both generals appealed to the treaty. Each construed it as suited his purpose, and each complained that the other had violated it. Sarsfield was accused of putting one of his officers under arrest for refusing to go to the continent. Ginkel, greatly excited, declared that he would teach the Irish to play tricks with him, and began to make preparations for a cannonade. Sarsfield came to the English camp, and tried to justify what he had done. The altercation was sharp. I submit, said Sarsfield at last, I am in your power. Not at all in my power, said Ginkle. Go back and do your worst. The imprisoned officer was liberated, a sanguinary contest was averted, and the two commanders contented themselves with a war of words. Ginkle put forth proclamations assuring the Irish that, if they would live quietly in their own land, they should be protected and favoured, and that if they preferred a military life, they should be admitted into the service of King William. It was added that no man, who chose to reject this gracious invitation and to become a soldier of Lewis, must expect ever again to set foot on the island. Sarsfield and Wacup exerted their eloquence on the other side. The present aspect of affairs, they said, was doubtless gloomy, but there was bright sky beyond the cloud. The banishment would be short. The return would be triumphant. Within a year the French would invade England. In such an invasion the Irish troops, if only they remained unbroken, would assuredly bear a chief part. In the meantime, it was far better for them to live in a neighboring and friendly country, under the parental care of their own rightful king, than to trust to the Prince of Orange, who would probably send them to the other end of the world to fight for his ally the Emperor against the Janissaries. The help of the Roman Catholic clergy was called in. On the day on which those who had made up their minds to go to France were required to announce their determination, the priests were indefatigable in exhorting. At the head of every regiment a sermon was preached on the duty of adhering to the cause of the church, and on the sin and danger of consorting with unbelievers. Whoever, it was said, should enter the service of the usurpers would do so at the peril of his soul. The heretics affirmed that, after the peroration, a plentiful allowance of brandy was served out to the audience, and that when the brandy had been swallowed, a bishop pronounced a benediction. Thus, duly prepared by physical and moral stimulants, the garrison, consisting of about fourteen thousand infantry, was drawn up in the vast meadow which lay on the clare bank of the Shannon. Here, copies of Ginkle's proclamation were profusely scattered about, and English officers went through the ranks imploring the men not to ruin themselves, and explaining to them the advantages which the soldiers of King William enjoyed. At length the decisive moment came. The troops were ordered to pass in review. Those who wished to remain in Ireland were directed to file off at a particular spot. All who passed that spot were to be considered as having made their choice for France. Sarsfield and Wacup on one side, Porter, Coningsby, and Ginkle on the other, looked on with painful anxiety. Disson and his countrymen, though not uninterested in the spectacle, found it hard to preserve their gravity. 
the confusion the clamour the grotesque appearance of an army in which there could scarcely be seen a shirt or a pair of pantaloons a shoe or a stocking presented so ludicrous a contrast to the orderly and brilliant appearance of their master's troops that they amused themselves by wondering what the parisians would say to see such a force mustered on the plain of grenelle end of section ten recording by